Heavenly Father, truly our desire, even in the words that we have just sung, is that you would speak this morning. That as we open your word, as we look to your word, that your spirit would speak to us through your word. That you would work in each and every one of us. That we'd be strengthened in our faith, that we'd be challenged. That if there are any here this morning who do not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, that even this morning, they would turn to him in faith. Father, we rejoice. Those of us who are in Christ, we rejoice in the salvation that is ours in Christ. And we pray that you would be honored in this time. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had a time in your life when you've sat back and you've looked over your life and you've wondered, what if? What if? There's so many little moments like that. What if? I often think about that. What if my senior year in high school I had not desired to work at a Christian camp? You see, my senior year in high school, I had a desire to work at a Christian camp that summer as I was going into uh, Christian college. And so I, I applied at many camps. I applied to work at Northland. I applied to work at the Wilds. I applied to work at many camps, and I was turned down. I didn't have the experience. I was young. So I was, I was frustrated. I didn't think I was going to be able to work at a camp that summer. And then my grandfather said, there's this camp in Michigan that I've preached at a few times. Maybe... Maybe they need some help. So he contacted Camp Kobiak up in Michigan, and they did need help. And so then that summer, last minute, this was the last probably month or so before uh, camp started, I was signed up to work at Camp Kobiak. I ended up going to Camp Kobiak, and I ended up meeting my wife there. Uh, and the Lord blessed that relationship, and we have children now. And many nights I'll lay there and I'll wonder, what if... What if I had gotten into one of those other camps? What would my life look like? What if Krista hadn't that summer ended up going to Camp Kobiak? There's so many what ifs. There's another what if from that very same summer. It was an August morning in the end of, of the summer of 2008. And I was on, I'd gotten back from working at camp that summer. I was on my way over to Bob Jones University. I was going to meet my friend. Uh, he had worked at a different camp that summer. We were going to meet together for the first time of the summer. We were going to, to see how our summers went, and we were going to practice soccer together. This friend and I often practiced soccer together. All through high school, almost every single weeknight, we had spent out on those soccer fields. We had, had many conversations, uh, shooting, passing, playing soccer together. This was before our freshman year at Bob Jones University. And for us, this was a big, this was a big deal. You see, we, we'd spent our whole life at Bob Jones. We'd spent our whole life seeing these different college teams play each other, and it was finally our turn. So we were committed. We were going to meet. We were going to train. We were going to do this every morning until the school year came. But the excitement of college soccer was not just... Uh, playing that, but there's, there was a specific missions team that Bob Jones University sent out each summer. It was a Brazil missions team. And it was the best soccer players would get to go on this team. They'd be selected. This wasn't a missions trip you could just sign up for. You'd be selected to go, representing Bob Jones University as one of their best soccer players. And they'd send you down there. And you'd play soccer, and you'd have uh, opportunities to preach and to, to interact with uh, some neat people down there. Growing up at Bob Jones, this was a mission trip that I'd been excited about going on my whole life. I had so looked forward to this. In fact, part of my training was not just that I could play soccer at Bob Jones, but that's so I could go on this mission trip. So I remember driving over early on this August morning of 2008. I was going to meet my friend. We were going to practice. We were going to get ready. On the way over, I realized that my car was low on gas, so I stopped and I got gas. I was supposed to meet my friend there about 
Traffic on the road was busy that morning, and between getting gas and, and getting stuck in traffic, by the time I got there, I was about 15 minutes late. I got there about 7.45. But in that 15 minutes, what I had missed was that the coach of that Brazil missions team had driven by while my friend was out practicing. He saw my friend practicing in the early morning. He was impressed. He stopped, and he talked to my friend, and he offered for my friend to go on that missions team. I missed that opportunity. Oh, well, I thought it's, it's early in the year. We still have the whole soccer season. We still have the full year. They don't pick the team until the end of the year. I'm good to go. I'll just I'll practice hard and I'll play hard. I was never asked. In all four years, I was never able to go on that mission trip that I had longed my whole life to go on. Looking back, it's good I didn't get to go because my motivation was wrong. I didn't want to go because I cared to tell the people to my shame in Brazil, about Jesus Christ, it was because I wanted to be recognized as one of the best soccer players at Bob Jones University. I'm ashamed of that. But the Lord knew that I didn't need to go on that mission trip. But I'd be lying if I didn't confess to you this morning that for those four years, when I was at Bob Jones, I struggled with that mightily. What if? What if I hadn't stopped to get gas that morning? What if I had been there at 7.30 in the morning and he had seen me practicing as well? Then I could have gone on that trip. What if? Those two words have probably cost many of us many hours of sleep. For some of you, the what ifs may be bigger than what if I, I was able to go on this missions trip. Maybe it's what if I had taken that job off? Or what if I had not said those words? What if I had paid better attention? What if? This morning as we work our way through this passage, we'll see three separate times when the question, what if, is asked. What if Jesus had been in Bethany before Lazarus had died? And what hope is there now that that opportunity is lost? As we come to John 11, Jesus' miracles are working toward the climax of his public ministry. We've seen back in John 2, as Jesus turned water into wine. We've witnessed the healing of the official's son from 20 miles away as Jesus simply spoke the words and it happened. We've seen the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. The feeding of over 5,000 with just one little boy's lunch. We've seen Jesus walk on water. We've seen Jesus healing the, blind, the man born blind. In the first 10 chapters of the book of John, Jesus has clearly demonstrated his authority over nature. His authority over sickness. And even in the other gospels, his authority over even demons. But now as we come to John 11, Jesus is faced with the greatest enemy of all, death. In the first 16 verses of John 11, we are introduced to the problem. A close friend of Jesus is very sick. In fact, Jesus has made it clear to his disciples that Lazarus is not just sick, he's actually already dead. But despite this, even in saying that, Jesus makes this claim. This sickness is not unto death. Lazarus may already be dead, but this sickness will not end in death. Jesus, with complete confidence, in the first 16 verses of John 11, assures his disciples that he is in complete control. As we come to John eleven seventeen to 37 Jesus comes face to face with Lazarus' sisters, with these mourners, with those who are mourning his death. In these verses, the tension is rising. In fact, Jesus' entire ministry, in a way, rests on what will happen next. Because Jesus has made a statement that this will not end in death, and yet Lazarus is dead. So we're going to see is Jesus who he says he is? 
Is Jesus some charlatan who has gained a following with sleight of hand? Or as he stated, is he who he says he is? As he stated, will death not get the victory? And will Jesus do something that no one can fathom? See, as we come to this passage, the tension of John 11 the reality that death is not unique to Lazarus. We are all in this passage because we will all die. We are all like Lazarus. We are dying men and women. And our hope, like the hope of the disciples, like the hope of Martha and Mary and the crowd of mourners and Lazarus himself, is dependent on Jesus. Is Jesus who he says he is? This morning in this passage, we'll find good news that Jesus is the resurrection and the life to all who believe. The first thing we see in verses 17 to 27 is Martha who runs to Jesus. Martha who runs to Jesus. In these verses, Jesus moves from Judea beyond the Jordan, where he had left, fled from Jerusalem at the end of John 10. He's been ministering beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist had been earlier. But now he moves from Judea beyond the Jordan where the messenger had found him earlier in this chapter back towards Jerusalem to the little town of Bethany. There's a few important details in these first several verses here. And these details help to build the tension, the rising action. First, notice that verse 17, that Lazarus has been dead in the tomb for four days. Lazarus was, as William Shakespeare, Charles Dickens would say, dead as a doornail. There was no hope that this was merely a mistake. There was no hope that Lazarus would suddenly wake up and walk out of the tomb. Lazarus was dead beyond the shadow of a doubt. In fact, at four days, the body had already begun the process of decay. Lazarus is so completely dead that even those who love him most, his sisters Martha and Mary, have completely submitted to the reality that Lazarus is gone. We see this specifically in John eleven thirty nine. Where we get to the point in the story where Jesus instructs them to move the, the stone, to open the tomb. And how does Martha respond? She says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. She knows he's dead. There's no doubt that Lazarus is dead. This serves to raise the tension. What can Jesus possibly do? This is not just a sickness. It's not just that Lazarus has, has passed out. He is dead beyond the shadow of a doubt. Second, John tells us here just how close to Jerusalem and the powerful religious leaders that Jesus and his disciples are. He makes it very clear in verse 18. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. These are the same religious leaders who have made clear their hate for Jesus and their intention to kill him at the first opportunity that they get. In fact, they're so close to Jerusalem that many of the Jews themselves have made the short trip from Jerusalem to Bethany to mourn with and comfort Martha and Mary. In this passage, John is moving us not just towards the climax of Jesus' public ministry, the greatest miracle that we see in his public ministry, but to the climax of the whole book. As Jesus moves toward Jerusalem, Jesus moves closer to the cross. 
The threats against Jesus and his disciples are real. The danger is close. And Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. But as Jesus nears Bethany, Martha runs to him. What's interesting in this passage, one of the things that stands out is the different personalities of the sisters. You'll notice their different reactions to this tragedy and to Jesus' arrival. Martha runs to Jesus. She cannot sit around. She cannot wait. Mary, as we will see, waits for Jesus. But it's interesting how Martha and Mary's reactions and personalities as displayed here in John 11 match their personalities perfectly as described in Luke 10, 38-42. You know that passage is a well-known passage where Jesus visits Martha and Mary. And Martha is frantically cleaning and cooking while Mary sits and listens to Jesus. In Luke 10, Martha is frustrated and Mary for not helping. She appeals to Jesus to make Mary help. And Jesus rebukes Martha. Because Mary, at that time, had the right priority. We see the same personalities come out now. As Martha, the one who is busy, the one who is outgoing, the one who can't sit still, runs to Jesus. And Mary, the one who is patient and introverted, sits and waits. I find it interesting, though, that we remember Martha more for her frustration in Luke 10 than we do for her faith here in John 11. Because Martha has a confidence, and you see that in verses 20 to 22. Martha is the first person that we meet in this passage who asks, What if? What if? She runs to Jesus and she, she, she comes to him. And the first thing that is recorded for us that she says is this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What if you had been here? I know what would have happened. My brother would not have died. I think it's best to understand this exclamation not as an accusation. She's not blaming Jesus for Lazarus' death. In fact, it becomes clear when you add what she goes on to say in verse 22 that rather than accusing Jesus, what Martha is doing here is expressing faith and continued confidence in Jesus. Her charge here is not that Jesus should have saved Lazarus, but that Jesus could have saved Lazarus. It's been made abundantly clear here in John 11 that Jesus is very close to this family. He knows them. He loves them. And they know and love him. They believe in Jesus. They've sat under his teaching. They've heard of the miracles that they have performed, that he has performed. Chances are they have been there for many of those miracles, that they have seen them. Martha knows Jesus, and she does not question his power. There's no doubt in Martha's mind that Jesus could have saved Lazarus. And oh, what if he had been here and he had. She moved to verse 22, though. She goes on. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will, for, will, God, uh, will give you. At first, that kind of strikes us as, as, as an interesting question. It seems almost at first that Martha is, is expecting Jesus to rise, raise Lazarus from the dead. At the very least she, least, she must be hinting at it. You could do this. I know you could. God would give it to you. However, the context clearly takes that possibility out of the question. Resurrection was nowhere in Martha's mind. She could not fathom resurrection. This becomes clear not only in her misunderstanding of what Jesus says in the very next verses, but as we saw earlier of her surprise response to Jesus when he asks the stone to be removed. It is Martha who objects, but he stinks. 
If Martha expected Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead, she would not be objecting to him moving the stone before his tomb. I think John eleven twenty two is best understood not as an expectation, but as a confession of continued confidence. Martha is not here saying, you still could give me my brother back. She's saying, you've chosen not to save him, and I still believe in you. I know that if you had been here, you could have healed Lazarus. But you weren't. Lazarus is dead, and I still believe that you are powerful. I still believe that you have a unique relationship with the Father. I did not get what I want, but I still believe you. Martha here expresses, she asks, what if? But she expresses continued confidence in who Jesus is. In verses 23 to 26, Jesus then comforts her. It'd be interesting to know what the disciples were thinking at this point as they're watching this all unfold. We know from the first 16 verses that they were very tense. We know that from Thomas's exclamation, well, let us go and die with him. If you have to go back towards Jerusalem, we'll go with you and we'll die. They're likely looking over their shoulders, concerned mostly with protecting themselves and Jesus from the looming danger of being in the shadow of Jerusalem. But I wonder if doubt about Jesus ever crept into their minds. Resurrection may be the furthest thing from Martha's mind, but the disciples were there in John 11.4. In fact, Jesus made this statement to them. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, it's one thing to believe Jesus far away on the other side of the Jordan. It's another thing to come into Bethany. To see Lazarus' sisters and those who are mourning his death. To see that he is dead and gone. To know what Jesus has promised you, what he has said. And to see the reality of the circumstances in which you are in. I'm sure for at least some of them, doubt crept in at some point during this. Jesus has said this would not end in death. Lazarus is clearly dead. As the disciples watch, Jesus makes a promise to Martha. Your brother will rise again. Martha's response in verse 24 reveals her misunderstanding about what Jesus is here say, said. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus has given her a a promise. He's given her hope. Your brother will rise again. But the hope that Jesus has given her here is no different than the hope that any other Jew who believed could give her. He's going to rise again. It's not so much that Martha has misunderstood what Jesus has said. It's It's that Martha has failed to consider who it is that is saying it. As I mentioned before, this is likely a sentiment that Martha and Mary have been reminded of several times over the last four days. I know it hurts. I know Lazarus is gone, but he will rise again. I believe that. I cling to that. That is my hope. I know it's coming. They've likely found so much comfort in the fact that Lazarus will one day rise again. It's a comforting thought, just as today we find hope that those who are in Christ at death are with Christ. That they will rise again, that we will see them again. But Jesus moves from the general comfort of he will rise again to specific, unique comfort in verse 25 to 26. 
You see, in verse 25, Jesus shifts Martha's focus from a promise about what will happen to the one who will make it happen. I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, Lazarus will rise again because I am the one who will raise him. Jesus is the source of resurrection and life. There is no resurrection or life apart from or outside of Jesus. Here in Altoona, we have those large Facebook buildings outside of town. In fact, social media has been all over the news surrounding the election and after the election. Several of the big names of social media have been called to testify before Congress. Perhaps one of the biggest names in social media is Mark Zuckerberg, who runs Facebook. Zuckerberg and Facebook are uniquely connected. They go together. There is no Facebook without Mark Zuckerberg. In fact, Mark Zuckerberg could rightly say, I am Facebook. It exists because of me. It does not exist without me. In an infinitely greater way, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is uniquely connected to resurrection and life. So closely connected that Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection and life do not exist outside of me. In fact, this is why Jesus came to bring Promised resurrection and life. We see that from the very beginning of John, in John 1.4. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. We go on later in that chapter to find out that the Word is Jesus Christ Himself. The Word became flesh. And in John 1.4 it says, in Him the Word was what? Was life. Life was with the Word. In fact, the word was life. They're so uniquely and closely connected. And that life was the light of men. John 10.10, we see life again, uniquely and specially connected with Jesus. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life is associated with Jesus. Jesus is associated with life. Jesus brings life. He's the source of life. And the good news of John eleven twenty five and 26 is that the promised resurrection and life that Jesus brings are available to all who believe. John eleven twenty five is the promise that all who believe in Jesus will have eternal, abundant life. And John eleven twenty six is a promise that for those who are in Christ, physical death is not the end. See, John eleven twenty six is not a promise that you will never face physical death, but it's a statement about physical death. For those who are in Christ, physical death is not the end. It is simply a doorway. As 2 Corinthians 5.4 goes on to explain it, for one who is in Christ, death is where what is mortal is swallowed up by life. Lazarus' hope for, his re- for resurrection in the last day, Martha's hope to see her brother again, her own hope for resurrection and for life. It's not some abstract promise. It's in the man who is standing before her. It is in Christ alone. This is why Jesus then calls her to respond, do you believe this? Martha has already stated her confidence in Jesus' power. Now Jesus calls her to affirm her faith in him alone. And notice her response. Yes, Lord, I believe. But look what she says. She doesn't say, I believe that you are the resurrection and life. I believe that those who believe in you will have life, will not face death. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. See, Martha here does not affirm her faith in the exact words that Jesus has said. 
but in who Jesus is. Because Martha believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world, she also then believes that he is the resurrection and the life. She believes in who he is, therefore she believes in what he can do. Martha's hope is not in some abstract promise. Martha's hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Again, in the recent political climate in which we are, and we've heard a lot about quid pro quo, quid pro quo. If you do this, I will do this. But notice that Martha's confession here is not based on any kind of quid pro quo. It's not based on any kind of hope that Jesus will resurrect Lazarus now. Their conversation is still entirely in the future, at least in Martha's mind. Again, still in verse 39, 10 verses from now, she's still not expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus. This isn't some kind of, hey Martha, I'll give you Lazarus if you give me faith. The conversation here is still focused on the future and what Jesus will do. The question is, will Martha believe that it is Jesus who will do it? Martha still has no expectation to see her brother alive before the last day. Jesus here does not raise Lazarus from the dead as a favor to Martha because of her confession of faith. Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead, as already been stated in verse 4, for the glory of God and the Son of God might be glorified through it. Like Lazarus and Martha, our hope is not in some abstract promise or power. It's in Christ alone. The question is not, do you think people will rise on the last day? The question is, do you believe that Jesus is the one who will raise them? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life as he said? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life because he is the son of God. This is why John states in John 20, 13, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then you will know that he can do what he promises to do. So the question in these first few verses this morning is the same question that Jesus asks Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe that this is who Jesus is? And therefore, are you confident that this is what Jesus can do? First, we see Martha who runs to Jesus. We see her confession of faith and continued confidence in him. Next, we see Mary who waits for Jesus. Once again here in verses 28 to 34, we see these these established personalities of these two women shining through. We don't know why Martha secretly called Mary. Maybe she desired to give Mary some some time to go and see Jesus alone like she had had. But what is interesting in these first few verses is the way that Martha refers to Jesus. Notice here. In verse 28, the end of verse 28, she says, The teacher has come and is calling for you. She refers to him as the teacher. Leon Morris, in his commentary, points out how significant it is that this title here is used by a woman. Those who were teachers of that day, rabbis, refused to teach women. Teaching was for men alone. And yet these women have a teacher who loves them and who teaches them. The message that Jesus brings is not just for the rich and the powerful. It's for the poor and the weak. It's not just for the Jew, it's for the Samaritan and the Greek. It's not just for man, but it's for woman as well. Jesus brings life to all who will believe. Once called, Mary does not hesitate to come quickly to Jesus. She gets up and she runs to him. She hurries to him. In 
I do not think that one of the points of this passage is that Martha was better than Mary because Martha ran to Jesus right away and Mary sat and waited until she was called. The point in the end is that they both went to Jesus. In fact, if anything, this passage is somewhat comforting in pointing out their differences because there are many differences among us. There's many personalities. In fact, if we all stood up and give our testimonies of salvation, we all came to Christ in different ways at different times. Some of us came the first time we heard. Some of us, it took years. Regardless of your personality, we are all sinners and we all need a Savior. But hopefully we've all come to Jesus in the end, and that is what matters. It's interesting that Mary's first words to Jesus are identical to Martha's. When she gets there, like Martha, we find the second what-if of this passage. As Mary says the same thing, what if you had been here? Jesus, Lazarus, would have lived Likely, these two sisters have shared the sentiment with each other over the past four days several times. I think Mary here, like Martha, is not accusing Jesus. She's not questioning Jesus. Her statement alone confesses that she believes that Jesus has the power over sickness. She knows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if Jesus had been here, Lazarus would have lived. She knows Jesus could have done that. Like Martha, Mary knows Jesus. She believes in Jesus. But they react differently to Jesus' death. In fact, John goes on to note the mourners who are with Mary. In fact, it is Mary who is associated so closely with these mourners. In verse 33, Jesus sees Mary's weeping and the weeping of the Jews who have come with her. And then he reacts to their weeping with what is described this way, with her weeping. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. The idea of the phrase goes beyond merely being moved emotionally. It indicates anger. Jesus is moved to righteous anger. So what is it about the situation that moves Jesus to burn with such anger? He sees Mary mourning the death of her brother. He sees these mourners with her. Mary has just confessed, I know you could have healed him. What is it that moves Jesus to righteous anger? D.A. Carson points out that there are likely a combination of two things that evoke this reaction in Jesus. First, Jesus is likely moved to righteous anger over the devastating consequences of sin and death. See, as Jesus stands here in the midst of such sorrow, he knows it did not have to be this way. You see, when he made the world, it was good. Now he stands in the midst of a world that is not good. He stands in the midst of a world that is overrun by sin and pain, by injustice and death. And it angers him. Second, I think there's likely an aspect that moves Jesus to anger over the lack of faith displayed in the hopeless sobs of these mourners. Unlike Martha who confessed her, who came to Jesus and and was clearly upset that Lazarus had died, she confessed her continued confidence in Jesus despite his death. She confessed her hope in the coming resurrection. But the display of overwhelming emotion before Jesus now does not testify to any confidence of coming hope. And the problem here is not with emotion, because in John 11.35, Jesus himself weeps. But there's actually two different words. There's a different word used for Jesus' weeping than there is for the weeping of the crowd and of uh, Mary. 
It's the same sin and death that, that has moved Jesus to anger in verse 33. And verse 35 moves Jesus to tears. But unlike the weeping of Mary and the Jews, Jesus' weeping is not hopeless weeping. He weeps, but he knows that there is hope. He knows what is coming. The point of this passage is not for those who are in Christ that physical death is not painful. But that for those who are in Christ, physical death is not the end. See, the problem here is not that Mary and the Jews were weeping, but that they were weeping and wailing without hope. They were overcome with grief. They had lost their perspective. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul reminds the Thessalonian believers, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Paul there does not say that you would not grieve, but that you would not grieve without hope. As those who are in Christ, our hope is eternal. In every valley, in every trial, even in the valley of the shadow of death, our hope remains. And so weep over sin, weep over death, reap over what it takes away, but weep with hope. Mourn, knowing that for those who are in Christ, death is not the end. For Christ is the resurrection and the life. We've seen Martha, who runs to Jesus, Mary, who waits for Jesus. Finally, we see the crowd who marvels at Jesus. In verses 35 to 37, as the crowd weeps over Lazarus' death, as they watch Jesus interact with Martha and Mary, they're left to wonder about this Jesus. We know from the passage that at least some of them have heard of Jesus. Likely all of them have. But some of them at least have seen him work at least one miracle. But it seems that most of this crowd is unsure of Jesus. They've not made up their mind. And it's this crowd of unsure mourners who offer the final what if of this passage. This crowd makes two observations about Jesus. First thing is that they notice Jesus is crying. And they are moved by his emotion. I can think of very few times in my life when I've seen my dad cry. In every instance when I've seen my father cry, I know that it's a big deal. I know that something big is happening when we see those that we perceive as powerful or as great moved to tears, it has a deep effect on us. We don't know what this crowd knows about Jesus. It's hard to imagine that many of them have not heard him preach, that many of them have not seen all of his, many of his miracles. We know at least some of them have seen at least one of his miracles. And it must have been very moving to see someone who is so powerful, who you have seen do such great things, who you have heard preach with such eloquence and power. It must be very hard to see him move to tears. Someone so powerful in such a tender moment. The crowd here interprets Jesus's, the crowd here interprets Jesus' tears as a testimony of Jesus' love for Lazarus. Jesus' special love for this family has been proven. We've seen that in John 3 and or John 11:3 and John 11:5. John, Jesus loved Lazarus dearly. However, as I mentioned earlier, I think the context makes it clear that Jesus' tears are less for Lazarus. Because Jesus knows that he's going to raise him from the dead. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And it's more over the brokenness of sin and death. Although the weeping of Mary in the crowd angers Jesus, it also moves him with compassion. And here in John 11, John portrays Jesus not just as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. 
Jesus is both the resurrection and the life. He has power over death itself. And he is the Savior who weeps. We see his divinity and his humanity. Secondly, the crowd has observed Jesus' power as displayed in the healing of the blind man. And they are left to wonder the final what if of this passage. What if Jesus had been here before Jesus died, before Lazarus died? If Jesus can heal a man from blindness, surely he can heal from sickness. The crowd in this passage does not seem to harbor any hate for Jesus. Some of the crowd said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, we saw him do that, amazing work, could he not also have kept this man from dying? And like the religious leaders in the rest of the book of John, where we've seen them very uh, angry at Jesus, this doesn't seem to be an angry response, but a genuine question. Like Martha and Mary, this question does not seem to be an accusation, but a genuine question. However, this question does reveal his misunderstanding about Jesus and unbelief in him. The question of the crowd lacks the surety of Martha and Mary. See, Martha and Mary both said, we know if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. The crowd asks, we've seen him do this work. Could he have done this work? Martha and Mary know that because Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus could have healed Lazarus. But the crowd sees Jesus not for who he is, but for what he has done. Their question is rooted not in Jesus' identity, but in Jesus' past action. Do you understand the difference there? Martha and Mary start with who Jesus is. We know this is who you are, therefore we know this is what you could have done. But the crowd starts not with who Jesus is. They start with what Jesus has done. This is what you've done. Could you have done this? Martha and Mary's confidence lies not in what Jesus has done in the past, but in who Jesus is. The crowd's uncertainty lies in the fact that they aren't sure who Jesus is. They haven't believed that Jesus is who he says he is. Here in this passage, in John eleven thirty five 35 to 37, we see a compassionate Savior. This crowd of mourners misunderstands Jesus' weeping. But regardless of why Jesus is weeping, his weeping reveals his humanity. Jesus is not just the Word. He is the Word made flesh. He is the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. And Christ's deity secures our hope. But Christ's humanity brings us comfort. As the author of Hebrews states, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus weeps because he understands. In fact, Jesus understands better than anybody who was there that day, better than anybody on any day since. Jesus understands. Jesus sympathizes. Jesus mourns over sin and death and the consequences and Jesus gives grace. As we come to the end of John eleven seventeen to 37, we are left with this question. Most basically, do you believe Jesus? Like Martha and Mary, is your faith in who Jesus is? Or like the crowd, is your hope merely in what you think Jesus might be able to do? See, before you can receive the benefits of Jesus Christ, you must believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Is your faith this morning in Jesus, the Son of God? 
As Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? If you're here this morning and you're not sure if you believe that, I would encourage you. In just a second, as we stand up and we sing our closing song, if you are not sure if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, come find me. Even as we are singing, come to the front and find me, and I will take you aside, and I will open the word of God, and I will point you to Christ. For Christians, those of us who are in Christ, first, rejoice in the hope that you have in Christ. As Paul reminds the Thessalonians, comfort one another with the hope that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that those who are in Christ do not pass from life to death, but from life to life more abundant. The point of this passage, the point of that passage in 1 Thessalonians, is not that death for the Christian should be easy. Death is difficult. Death is painful. Death is hard. Because death comes as a result of the fall. It becomes as a result of our sin. And yet, in the midst of that, we have hope. The point is not that death is easy for Christians. The point is that Christians have hope even in the depths of the pain of death. We are not left hopeless. So be comforted. Be comforted that your Lord, Jesus Christ, is the, the resurrection and the life. Secondly, remember that Jesus is both your powerful Savior and your compassionate priest. Bring your burdens to him with boldness, knowing that he sympathizes with your weakness. He understands. He's been there. He gets it. Rejoice in the hope that you have in Christ. And bring your requests before him with boldness, because he understands. Your God hears you. He understands. And he's powerful enough to work on your behalf for your good and for his glory. If you are in Christ this morning, as the tension is rising here in John 11, we should find comfort. We should find hope because this is our God at work. Even, even in the face of death itself.